0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. In his interview with 60 Minutes on Sunday, President Trump continued to complain about the Russia investigation, painting that Robert Mueller's probe as ridiculous.
1: Do you really think I'd call Russia to help me
2: with an election? Give me a break. They wouldn't be able to help me at all call Russia. so ridiculous.
0: But now sources tell Bloomberg News that Mueller is expected to issue findings on two of the most explosive aspects of his inquiry soon after the November midterm elections. Joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington is Bloomberg News Deputy Managing Editor Kevin Whitelaw. So, Kevin, until now, it seems like Mueller has been above the political fray. Has that changed? Is he issuing these findings next month because the pressure has intensified?
1: Well, I I think, um, you know, he's obviously been working now in this probe for almost a year and a half, so I think some of this is the natural run of things, and and we knew that he was largely going to be trying to avoid doing anything really splashy in in the period right before the midterms, but um, our sources are making it clear that he's um, sort of wrapped up elements of his, key elements of his probe, or is about ready to, and and is is ready to, to move ahead. There's still a few things that could possibly get in the way of it, so the timing is a little unclear, and what also remains unclear, is what exactly he's going to do. Um, we don't know whether this is going to be uh, public indictments or whether it's going to be a private report to the man who oversees his probe, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. And and that report may or may not become public. That is going to be in Rosenstein's hands.
0: So tell us about the two aspects of his inquiry.
1: Well, the main ones that we, we are expecting some, um, some level of resolution on um, – are the collusion aspect the question of whether there were there was some amount of of collusion? It would probably be charged more as a conspiracy rather than collusion um, in terms of the actual legal charges. But when it comes to coordination between uh, the Trump campaign and, Ru- and the Russian government. Uh, and the other would be obstruction of justice, whether the president or other people um, engaged in anything that would actually be considered obstruction of justice. So those two things are are sort of the the, the big main sort of tent poles of, of what we're uh, anticipating. But as I say, there's a handful of things that are still a little unknown, including whether or not uh, Robert Mueller is going to seek to force uh, uh, some kind of interview with, with the president.
0: Many pe- members of the public think that when Mueller gives his report, issues it in any form that the public is going to hear about it. And that may happen, but it may not happen unless there are leaks. So tell us what the scenario will be. He'll give his report to Rosenstein.
1: He'll give his report to Rosenstein. Again, if there's indictments and they're public, we'll find out about them, right? In the same way we found out about all of the other people he's indicted or reached plea deals with. Um, but uh, it, you know, if he decides to stop short of that, he might still say that the president did something wrong. Um, there's a lot of justice department uh, guidelines that suggest you can't indict a sitting president. Right. So that would leave with Mueller with the uh, ability to basically say, here's what, here's what my findings are to Rod Rosenstein. And it would be up to Rosenstein to decide whether to relay those to Congress, which would be then uh you know, could, could consider whether there's a, a penalty necessary impeachment or, or whatever. Uh, One of the key things here now is going to be, obviously, whether the Democrats can win a chamber of uh, Congress in the upcoming election. If they take over the House uh, next year, that would actually give them subpoena power and would put them in position to find out what's in uh, Mueller's report, whether or not Rod Rosenstein uh, decides to release it. So uh, we're in a slightly uncharted territory with a number of these elements as to exactly how this is going to proceed. And, you know, so so we're all going to be looking in the days and weeks following the midterms to see what we can figure out about what uh, what Robert Mueller's up to.
0: Well, we'll also be looking at, as we would anyway, at President Trump and whether he decides to fire Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, whom he's express, expressed displeasure with almost since he took the office. Office, and Rod Rosenstein, who was seemingly and almost fired a few weeks ago. So explain what could happen if one or both of those people are fired before Mueller gives his report.
1: Well, that's right. If if Jeff Sessions is um, is pushed out, whether he's fired or or leaves, um, that would uh, mean that whoever Trump uh, puts in the place as acting attorney general could actually then take over the supervision of Mueller's probe, and and then could decide how to handle it. So, uh, in that in that event, it would not be Rosenstein deciding what to do with the report, but somebody else. We don't know who that person would be. Um, if uh, Rod Rosenstein is is removed while Sessions is still in place, there's a slightly different scenario. A different official would take charge of the report, but either way, you're going to end up with some new people uh, who would have to quickly get read in on the details of, of what Mueller's been up to for the past year and a half and decide how to proceed. So yet another set of reasons why uh, we do believe that, uh, uh, that Mueller is, is intending to try to move relatively quickly uh, in the wake of the midterm elections.
0: Uh, In addition, let's just talk a moment, we only have a minute here, about Michael Cohen. In an AP interview, Trump said that Cohen was lying when he testified that Trump ordered hush payments in violation of campaign finance laws. Do you know what's happening with Cohen?
1: Well, at this point, we believe Cohen has been cooperating with, with uh, prosecutors up in New York. That whole thing has been a separate probe related to Cohen's activities and some of the other campaign activities and hush money payments and those kinds of things, entirely separate from Mueller. But we also believe that Cohen has been meeting with Mueller's team as well. We're, uh, but, you know, obviously, in terms of the details of what he's providing, that still remains unknown.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Kevin. That's Bloomberg News Deputy Managing Editor Kevin Whitelaw. We're live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Last night, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts made a rare public appearance at a lecture series at the University of Minnesota, where he stressed the importance of an independent court.
2: Now, the court has, from time to time, erred, and erred greatly. But when it has, it has been because the court yielded to political pressure, as in the Korematsu case shamefully upholding the internment during during World War II of Japanese American citizens.
0: Joining me is Steve Sanders, a professor at Indiana University Mara School of Law. Steve, after the bitter partisan fight over Kavanaugh's confirmation, other justices have also talked about how the court is not political, not partisan. Now the chief repeats the theme he's spoken of many times before, and he quoted from Kavanaugh calling him our newest colleague. Will this do anything to reassure those who are concerned about the
2: court? Uh, I'm not sure it will, uh, June, only because probably relatively few people other than your listeners and uh, uh, some people who catch it online will even see the Chief Justice's comments. Um, You know, far more pervasive has been uh, the fight over Kavanaugh. And and I think we, we have to draw a distinction here between how the court operates and how it makes decisions. That's really, I think, what the Chief Justice was talking about, and we can debate whether that's political or not. Um, But, you know, what we're really talking about is the expectation of of who will get on the court and what kinds of people we want on the court. I I think the actions of President Trump in promising a justice who would vote a particular way on particular cases, as well as the actions of people like Mitch McConnell, who prevented President Obama from getting a pick and instead, you know, paved the way for uh, President Trump now to. Have two picks. I think those actions simply speak much more loudly about the uh, perceived politicization of the court and uh, unfortunately do more damage and further undermine this idea that the Supreme Court uh, really does uh, accept arguments and consider law and make decisions without any sort of political preconceptions.
0: In answering the law students' questions, Roberts said that criticism of his opinions don't, doesn't have an effect on him. Quote, the good thing about life tenure is it really doesn't bother you very much. And that brings up the next issue, the renewed calls for term limits for the justices. Many legal scholars favor term limits. How do you feel?
2: You know, I, I've gone back and forth. I, I, I have academic friends who are very much uh, fans of the idea. And for a long time, I thought, well, it, it can't hurt. The, the, the idea behind life tenure for all federal judges, including Supreme Court justices, has always under, been understood to be to assure their independence, to assure they couldn't be voted out or removed because they do something that is unpopular. Um, life tenure, or I'm sorry, a term limit simply sets a set period of time, it doesn't make any judgments about Uh, uh, the correctness or the wrongness or the controversial nature of a justice's decisions. I I think I'm coming to be persuaded, though, that if if it's intended to solve the problem of the politicization of the court, it could do more harm than good. Um, One of the most common proposals is an 18-year term, and that's um, uh, designed to assure that basically during each four-year presidential term, there would be two vacancies. Each each, uh, Presidential term would have two appointments to the Supreme Court. Well, you know, then you know we could be in an almost permanent state of chaos. If if you liked the Kavanaugh, uh, 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 a circus, then get ready for something like that potentially every two years. Uh, a fight like that. It seems to me, perhaps in retrospect, that the court has done the best or has been the least controversial um, in the public mind. Has been the the, the uh, a political football less during periods when the membership of the court has been very stable, when we haven't had uh, frequent turnover and frequent nomination fights.
0: Let's talk about the the ways, if it is decided and people are in favor of it and legislators are in favor of it, the ways that the limit to limit the terms of justices. A constitutional amendment or legislation and constitutional amendment would require two thirds approval of the House and Senate, as well as three quarters of the states. Is that even plausible nowadays? Should we just go on to the next thing?
2: I don't think anyone thinks that a, a constitution, you know, it, it, the, the nature of our politics seems to be such that I don't think any, anybody believes you could get two-thirds of the both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states to agree on anything. <laughs> um, the constitutional amendment process was intended to be difficult. To, to, we don't want to change a fundamental thing like the Constitution lightly, but it's become virtually impossible. Um, I'm just not really sure sure there have been arguments made that you could do term limits through ordinary legislation, just a majority of Congress and the president's signature. I think that's highly debatable. I haven't uh, looked closely enough or in-depth enough about it, I guess, to determine. The the argument is basically, well, it doesn't cut against the idea that the principle enshrined in the Constitution, uh, tenure for good behavior, uh, other generally understood to be life tenure uh, was meant to assure independence. Term limits don't cut against independence. They just essentially define what the office is. That would certainly go against uh, sort of generations of thinking about what life tenure means for federal judges. Um, you know, the argument may continue to be developed and maybe um, uh, maybe someone will be persuaded that you could do this through legislation. Um, I, I think it would be, I, I, I think it would be a difficult argument though Steve
0: if let's just say if you did do, do it through legislation what how would it affect other lifetime judicial appointments would you have to do it across the board?
2: Well, you wouldn't have to. Uh, you know, most people, you know, the, the, the work that the federal district judges do, and for the most part that the federal courts of appeal do, is not nearly so much in the public eye as the Supreme Court is. And, and those judges all have life tenure as well. Um, I, I think if you started having term, given the number of judges that we have, if you started term limiting them, the, the, just the process of replacing uh, the, the sheer number of the, the hundreds of federal judges you have, on on a rotating basis, on a regular basis, would be so um, inefficient and would be so disruptive to the work of those courts. I don't know that anyone is posing that idea seriously. The thing about the Supreme Court is that its word is final. It interprets the Constitution. The other courts, the lower courts, by and large, follow the guidance of the Supreme Court. So to the extent that it's felt that it's necessary to have fresh blood, to uh, prevent entrenched points of view, um, to assure some turnover and some political accountability. I think it makes sense to be talking about it for the Supreme Court, much much more so than it does for the lower court.
0: Thanks, Steve. That's Steve Sanders. He's a professor at Indiana University Maurer School of Law.